So, with that, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to uh, the book of Ruth this evening, Ruth chapter 1. I started a series uh, on, on Ruth last week, and I'd like to just spend tonight uh, in the first chapter with you. I love this book. It's an exciting book. It's an exciting book to preach. Um, and so I'm excited about looking at chapter 1 together this evening. So Ruth and chapter 1, beginning uh, at verse 1, we'll read to the end of chapter 1. This is God's Word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, 
And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's ask God's blessing on His Word. Father, Your Word is truth. Your Word is powerful. Your Word is living and active. Would You change us, O Lord? Would You transform us tonight? Would You speak uh, in in a personal and powerful and penetrating way through Your Spirit into our hearts, into our lives, into our church, into our homes? May we see Jesus Christ tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, B.B. Warfield uh, was one of the great theologians in our history. He uh, taught at Princeton uh, for 34 years uh, and uh, wrote many, many books and is uh, fairly well known, at least in uh, reform circles. But what is perhaps uh, less known is the fact that on his honeymoon, his wife, his new bride, Allie, was struck by lightning and was uh, permanently paralyzed for the rest of her life. Now, just imagine that. Starting out, uh, just getting married, having all of these hopes and dreams, and having that sort of devastating trial uh, come upon you. Uh, But as we we read in history books, we're told uh, by many that Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield, loyally and sacrificially stayed by her side. In fact, uh, he couldn't be uh, apart from her for more than two hours at a time. So he would go to the seminary and teach, and he would have to go home because of her needs and care for her. His life is a, a beautiful testimony of kindness, of sacrificial kindness. And that's what we see in tonight's passage in this entire book of Ruth, incredible kindness, not only from Ruth the Gentile, the outsider, the Moabite woman to her mother-in-law, but also then we see a beautiful picture of the kindness of our God in reaching out to strangers and welcoming outsiders and in His faithfulness, His loyalty, His steadfast love. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful story. It's a true story, boys and girls. It, it really happened. These things really took place. It's a love story. It's a story of kindness. It's a story about a widow's journey from emptiness to fullness. It's about a kinsman redeemer. It's about the ancestral line of the greatest Old Testament king. And the story prefigures the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus Christ. And like a play, it has three distinct scenes, and if you're following along in the outline, I just want to walk through each of these three scenes uh, this evening, beginning with relocation. Scene number one, uh, relocation. Look with me at verse one at the setting, uh, the backdrop to this story. We're told at the very outset here in verse one that this was the days when the judges ruled. This is the days when the judges ruled. Uh, This isn't just... um, Uh, just an interesting uh, chronological marker. This tells us something about the spiritual climate of Israel during this particular time. Uh, This time uh, was a time of of godlessness. There was no king in Israel. They had no uh, rudder. They had no sense of identity. They were playing with the world. 
In fact, the, the verse right before Ruth 1, 1 in our English Bibles is Judges chapter 21, verse 25, which ends this way, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I think we can relate to that, can't we, to some degree in our, our culture, which is, I think, increasingly confused and worldly-minded, everyone doing what is right in their own minds, not interested in submitting to an authority higher than themselves, but creating laws along the way, whatever makes one happy. This was what was going on in Israel, not just around them in their culture and community, but within the, the camp as well. So these were some of the worst times in the land, and uh, to make matters worse, there was a famine in the land, we're told. There was a famine in the land. Uh, no doubt this was a, a part of the chastening of the Lord. There was a pattern that was repeated in, in the book of Judges. There was rebellion. Then there was some sort of uh, response of God to that rebellion. Then there was repentance. Then there was restoration, but the cycle continued, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And here we see some of that chastening hand of their covenant God as there was a famine. There was no food. We, we've, you know, just the last couple of days, it's been incredibly hot and dry, and you just sort of get a, just a glimmer of what it's like to live in the midst of famine in an agricultural society. Uh, this, town, this family was from the town of Bethlehem, which means literally house of bread, so there's an irony here. In Bethlehem, the house of bread, there was no food. The cupboards were bare. In the land flowing with milk and honey, there was nothing to eat. There was nothing to drink. We're introduced to this family then in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons are also given, Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, given that backdrop, given that situation and context, given the fact that they were living in the midst of a famine, Elimelech, the father, had a choice uh, to make. Would he stay in uh, Bethlehem or would he go? Would he stay in Bethlehem or would he look for food elsewhere? And from a human level, the choice was easy. Bethlehem had no food. This is a matter of survival. What father wouldn't do whatever it took to provide for his family? Yet on a spiritual level, there really wasn't a choice to be made because Bethlehem was in Judah. Judah was in the promised land. The promised land was the, 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 the blessing of their covenant God. This was a chastening of the Lord. This was the discipline of the Lord. And, and this Israelite, this head of household, needed to remain patient under that discipline, under that chastening hand, until the Lord mercifully lifted that. He needed to turn in repentance along with his fellow Israelites. This wasn't some neutral decision uh, like choosing between living here in West Michigan or moving to Washington State. No, this was wrapped up in the covenant. This was wrapped up in obedience and submission to God's will and God's ways. But it gets worse. 
the place under consideration was Moab. Moab! (laughs) Across the other side of the Dead Sea, a country which got its start because of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. A country whose king hired Balaam to curse Israel. A country whose women, as the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, sexually seduced the men of Israel. This was Israel's arch enemy. This would be like me leaving Zealand and joining the Islamic State in the Middle East. Yet Moab had food. Perhaps a little stay wouldn't hurt. Perhaps Elimelech would just sort of investigate. It's interesting. There's a progression here. There's a progression in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, the author says that he was uh, going to sojourn. That is, he was just going to sort of look things over, check out the landscape. But then we read at the end of verse 2, they went into the country of Moab and they remained there. They remained there. They settled there. Just a note that that's inevitably what happens when we play around with sin. What maybe starts as just a desire to sojourn, if gone unrepented of, can easily become a place where we remain and settle down and get comfortable. The name Elimelech means, my God is king. And yet, given the backdrop and context of the covenant, it's as if Elimelech too was doing what was right in his own eyes. And then tragedy strikes this family. While in Moab, Elimelech dies. The boys then marry Moabite women. The name of the one was Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah. The name of the other was Ruth. And over the course of the next ten years, both her sons die. So her husband dies, and now her sons die. And Naomi, this Israelite woman, was living in a foreign land. She was stricken with grief. She was all alone, essentially, and she was financially destitute. And you have to get this if you're going to get Ruth, the, the book, the story. You have to understand just how desperate Naomi's condition and situation was. In the ancient Near East, to be a widow and to be without sons was to leave a woman completely vulnerable and desperate and dependent. If you didn't have any children, if you didn't have any sons, then you would be completely dependent upon your covenant community, and in this case, She had left that all. My professor Ian Duguid said this in his commentary, she was a stranger in a strange land, an aging single woman of no significance in a family-oriented culture with no one to care for or about her. And the summary is in verse 5. Look with me there. Verse 5, names are important in this opening section. To name a child is is, is, uh, to signify life. Verse 5 says, notice, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the, notice this, her name isn't even mentioned here in verse 5, is it? 
so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. It's as if Naomi died with her husband and her sons. That's the relocation. That's the choice that was made to uproot the family to Moab, and their tragedy struck. So here's Naomi. What is she going to do? The second scene then opens uh, in verse 6 and reads all the way through verse 18. This is where we see, secondly, the road, the road. Uh, Verse 6, the Lord had visited His people and given them food. And so, God had lifted uh, this uh, discipline in Israel and had returned mercy. And uh, so, now for Naomi, it seems that her only choice was was to head back. So, off she goes, together with her two daughters-in-law. They would accompany her for now. They both had shown wonderful kindness, and for that, Naomi expresses her thanks. She kisses them, and they weep out loud. And we think as the audience, end of the story, right? Orpah and Ruth will return to Moab, and Naomi will return to Israel, and and they will both write new scripts for themselves. But that's not how the story goes. As you know, both of them respond, we want to go with you. To which Naomi says, in essence, don't be silly. Moab is where you belong. Those are your people. Those are your customs. Those are your gods besides you're still young enough to find husbands and to bear sons who can provide for you. They were in the same spot as she was, financially destitute, desperate, vulnerable. Maybe she was also thinking ahead, how am I going to survive back home, let alone if I bring these two outsiders with me? And maybe she was also thinking, would they be welcome back home? Would they be welcome back home? They were Moabites. And so, back and forth they go, and uh, we read that Orpah leaves and she goes back home. It's the sensible choice. It's the practical choice. From a human perspective, it makes sense. We ought not to be too hard on Orpah. And yet, surprisingly, what we find in verse 14 is that the other daughter-in-law, the one by the name of Ruth, the text says, clung to her, clung to her. Just, just try to picture that scene of, of, uh, of Ruth clinging to her mother-in-law. This is her mother-in-law, by the way. We're thankful for mother-in-laws. She's clinging to her mom-in-law. Same word used in uh, uh, Genesis 2.24, a husband shall hold fast to his wife. That's That's the word, that's the language, hold fast, cling to. Listen to the kindness Naomi responds as, 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 as Ruth is, is clinging to her, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God's return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, 
And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I will remain with you for better or worse in sickness and in health till death do us part. She was committing her very livelihood, her life, her future, her customs to this woman. What a profound, what a a stunning display of selfless love, of of, of really giving herself in faith, expecting very little, if nothing, in return. What's the kindest thing someone has ever done for you? Whatever it looked like in its particulars, it probably included lots of grace, lots of mercy, and was probably done at a cost, a personal cost, maybe a financial cost, maybe even the cost of uh, reputation. There's a a great story told of uh, a boy named Jack who was nine who was uh, sitting in school one day, and suddenly, to his worst nightmare, there was a puddle underneath his legs. And he starts thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? This has never happened before. What is the teacher going to think? What are my friends going to think? The boys will never hang out with me anymore. The girls will never talk to me anymore. The teacher recognizes the situation, comes over, he prays, help. Just then a girl named Susie walks over with a fishbowl and trips over the teacher, and all of the water is poured upon Jack, and suddenly Jack is the recipient of great compassion and mercy and sympathy, and Susie, on the other hand, is ridiculed and mocked. I mean, she killed the classroom fish. And later that day, as they're waiting for the bus stop, Jack says to Susie, you knew that I wet my pants. And Susie said, yeah, I did that once too. Kindness. The kindness of a a daughter-in-law to give of herself sacrificially to loyally commit herself to her mom-in-law despite all of the unknowns and uncertainties about a future that she could not have known. It's an amazing, it's an amazing story, isn't it? I'm going to go with you all the way. Where you live, I'm going to live. Where you die, I'm going to die. This will become her new identity. She's clinging herself to Naomi on this road. Verse 18 summarizes this section. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. (laughs) Okay, what am I supposed to do? You're clinging to me. Let's go. Relocation, the road finally the return. 
the return. Verses 19 through 22. Was there a knot in Naomi's stomach? It had been a long time since she was back in Bethlehem, and the townspeople knew it. And there would be no way for them to know that she was coming back. Verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? They were were shocked. But notice who's not mentioned here. No mention is made of Ruth. We would expect the text to say, is this Naomi? And who is this with you? But no mention of Ruth is made at all. It's as if she's invisible. Naomi's reply, verse 20, so she said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. This is her outlook. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She was bitter, bitter at God, bitter at her circumstances, bitter at all that she had lost over those ten years. Her outlook was empty and husbandless and childless and penniless and purposeless. Or so she thought. Because standing right beside her, though invisible in the passage and in large measure perhaps invisible to those who were there in the community, was standing the very person whom God would use to bring back joy and blessing and hope into this woman's life. Perhaps you're here tonight and you're in, in a way, Ruth's position, where there's somebody in your life who you are called to bless. And it might be very costly. Are you willing, because of the kindness of God to you, to lay down your life for that person, that friend, that neighbor, that ministry opportunity. But perhaps you're here tonight and you feel a lot like Naomi. Maybe your outlook coming into church this evening was one of emptiness and, if honest, bitterness. Bitterness about all that has gone against you in your life, perhaps uh, particularly recently. Maybe it's a prodigal child or a diagnosis or a shattered dream or some injustice. It's so easy to become blind to the gifts that God has given to us and the people even that are right around us. We can become invisible to them. We can have tunnel vision Or maybe your emptiness tonight is a result of settling down in Moab. 
Maybe you thought that in Moab there would be greener pastures. And maybe you haven't literally run away, but you might as well have a Moabite address. It's interesting, isn't it? This fork in the road that we find in chapter 1, Orpah makes the sensible choice. She makes the choice with what she can see. Ruth, on the other hand, makes this choice by God's grace through the lens of faith. Naomi's emptiness would be changed to fullness throughout the course of the story in the most surprising and merciful of ways through a Gentile daughter-in-law. She had no idea at this time all the ways that God was going to bless her and show mercy to her and encourage her through this invisible woman, this outsider. You see, God puts people in our lives for a reason. Whatever the form is that it takes, God is in the business of showering mercy and kindness and grace upon us in our emptiness and in our bitterness when we forget who He is. You see, the only ultimate and lasting and satisfying answer to our emptiness comes through the most surprising of ways, through one who left his country and who took on flesh and who died on a cross and rose again and who now clings to you. Do you, do you. do you sense that Jesus Christ is clinging to you tonight, that He's with you, He's near you by faith in Him? He's, he's in you by His Holy Spirit, that despite what we experience in this life and the things we experience are hard, and many of you know that much better than I, difficult providences, losses, devastating things, yet it's there, it's especially there, even in the midst of our sin and our doubts, that He remains with us. His kindness, Paul says in Romans 2 verse 4, His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. He's with us always. He refuses to let us go. He clings to us as He showers blessings upon us in the most unusual and unexpected and surprising of ways. So, if you're here tonight and you're empty, your heart is wandering and bitter, know this, that the God who pursued you is the God who will remain with you the God who will uphold you by His righteous right hand, the God who will never leave you, the God who will never, ever forsake you because He's a God of kindness. He's a God of grace. And so turn to Him tonight. Turn to Him tonight for your strength, your joy, your life. Only Jesus Christ can do what your heart longs for, that is to fill you and to give you what you could never get for yourself. 
So this passage, this chapter, and this whole story just screams the gospel. This is a story of an empty woman here who by the end, through the kind providence of God and the kinsman redeemer, she will end up being fuller than she could ever ask or imagine. God can do more, abundantly more than all that we ask or imagine. So let us trust Him. Let us look to Jesus Christ. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your precious word to us. We thank you for this glorious story. Lord, we thank you for filling our emptiness with good things, good gifts, with Christ himself. We thank you, O Lord, for not leaving us on the road, but for pursuing us and clinging to us by your grace, and also for sending us people like Ruth to walk beside us, to hold us by the hand, to remain loyal to us no matter what happens in our lives, no matter the disappointments. And Father, we just rejoice tonight at Your amazing kindness in the Lord Jesus Christ, a kindness which has been poured out in incredible abundance. Oh Lord, may we rest in that this week, whatever comes, whatever trials are before us, whatever difficulties we experience, may we remember that you are faithful and hold us each step of the way by the hand. We thank you that you are a God who is near us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It's a great comfort, isn't it, to know that God will not let us go. He is a clinging God to us. He's faithful. And we're going to close tonight by singing together, O love that will not let me go. Uh, let's stand to sing.